Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada. What a wonderful challenge has been given to all men as we examine the life of Nehemiah in our series, God's Man. Today, we conclude the series with a message fittingly entitled, Finishing Well. So turn to Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9 as we join Dr. John Newfeld. We've been engaged in a one-week series in which we have been celebrating godly manhood. This has been a call for the Church of Jesus Christ to understand the distinctiveness of men. You know, some may have wondered why it was necessary to do this. Why speak of the uniqueness of men and the specific ways in which men both respond to God and become men growing in holiness? You know, to that I respond two ways. First, having spoken of the call to godly manhood, I think that means that sometime in the future, I must also speak about the call to godly womanhood. I have not wanted women to feel left out or or to feel that their spirituality and their contribution to the advancement of the kingdom is not vital. But I do think that women need to understand the men in their lives, and I believe that God has given men and women a unique and complementary role to play in the outworking of God's reign. Secondly, I have spoken about godly manhood because of a growing crisis among the people of God. I've been making the point that in North America, 61% of church attendees are women. And that figure is rising as more and more men continue to drop out of church. I've not been saying that we should not concentrate on women or that too many women are in church. Indeed, I have repeatedly said we need to reach more women with the gospel. But my concern is that we strive to reach men as well and that we not neglect that vital task. Now, I've also said that we have overlooked men because we've not understood men. In her book, Want Your Church to Grow, Then Bring in the Men, author Polly House points out that when a mother is converted to Christ, 17% of the time, the children are converted as well. But when a father converts, that figure rises to an astonishing 93%. To fail to recognize the essential role that men play is to fail to understand that we can breathe health and vibrancy into the church through reaching men. And that's but some of the reasons I believe we need to articulate what I have called a testosterone-filled godliness. We need to articulate godly manhood and encourage men into just such a godliness. And if we will but open our eyes to the Scripture, we're going to see such things articulated. Consider Hebrews eleven thirty-two to 33, which reminds us, And what more shall we say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. See, I hope you can see exactly what it is that the Bible describes. The great men of God were men who conquered and enforced and quenched and were men of accomplishment. They went to war. They fixed problems. They were singular in the call to action. Men respond to just that kind of a call. And unless we call men to a task, a task that involves fighting and sacrifice, we will lose them. If we keep on singing, oh, Jesus, when I look into your eyes, I get intense feelings for you and so forth, men are going to leave. 
But if we sing onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with a cross of Jesus going on before, Christ, the royal master, leads against the foe, forward into battle. See his banner go. Sing that and watch men suddenly look up and understand what it is to be a man of God. To bow in allegiance to their king is to invite a deep love for Christ in their hearts. Listen to the second verse of Onward, Christian Soldiers. At the sound of triumph, Satan's host doth flee. On then, Christian soldiers, on to victory. Hell's foundations quiver at the shout of praise. Brothers, lift your voices, loud your anthems raise. I wish we had more worship choruses that understood these vital biblical images. See, if you want your men to sing loud, provide them with a cause that will cost them their lives, and then call them together and have them worship with that kind of a song and watch them suddenly begin to sing with a passion, where in the past they simply looked down and waited patiently until the worship set was over. See, men don't want to sing romantic songs to Jesus. They, they want the biblical images of spiritual warfare and an expectation of the ultimate triumph of the Lamb of God. You know, does that sound strange? Then listen to another of the great old classic hymns, this one written by Isaac Watts entitled, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? In the second verse, Watts writes, Must I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease, while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? No, I must fight if I should reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain, supported by thy word. See, men respond to that kind of language. How many of you are surprised that there was an entire genre of songs that sounded exactly like that? It was a day when men thought it was overwhelmingly manly to be a Christian man. Again, let me say it as forcefully as I can. That doesn't exclude women. Indeed, when men take the lead in the battle for the gospel, watch the women take a place of strength. Indeed, Hebrews 11, after telling us of the men for the battle for faith, who conquered kingdoms and, and stopped the mouths of lions, and then in the very next verse, verse 35, will say, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. But did you notice the difference in emphasis? Men were going to battle for the faith and women were refusing to allow the gains made in the day of battle to be lost in their day. They held fast and refused to give ground. They cheered their men and say, we won't desert you. I hope you see a complementary partnership in the gospel here. But here's what's happened. We have allowed the fight for gospel truth to become watered down so that in many people's eyes, the gospel is reduced to a command to be nice to each other, to hug it out, so to speak. Instead, we need to stress that it is necessary to be engaged in a great battle for the hearts and souls of men and women. All hell resists the preaching of the word, and Satan and his hosts would seek our undoing, and indeed, Satan would defeat us if Christ were not our leader. Martin Luther's famous hymn, A, a Mighty Fortress is Our God, supports just such a view. In one verse we sing, Were the whole world with devils filled should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. 
the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. Again, a a great hymn of the church that speaks deeply into the masculine soul for spirituality. Well, that's been a lengthy introduction. You know, in our study of the book of Nehemiah, we have seen a man who saw a great need among the people of God. The walls around Jerusalem were broken down, and the people of God were vulnerable to their enemies. Nehemiah used his position of influence to put together the resources that were required to rebuild the wall. You know, in the process, he encounters enemies from without and discouragement among God's people and deeply rooted sin among the people of God. Leadership and courage were required. He faces the enemies of the Jews with determination and demands the corrupt Jews from within the community submit themselves to the law of God. And then in Nehemiah 6, verses 15 to 16, we read, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Now that might seem to be the end of it, but those who know the story of Nehemiah well know that Nehemiah's enemies regrouped and used a different tactic now in their opposition. In short, the battle was not so quickly ended. And so in chapter 7, Nehemiah sets out to appoint men to take extra security precautions. But something wonderful has been accomplished. According to Genesis 15, God had promised this land to the descendants of Abraham, and that wall represented that the people of God would not be quickly uprooted from the land. The battle that Nehemiah had fought had produced a lasting result. And it is here, at exactly this moment, that Nehemiah realizes that he has but one skill and calling, and that something else now needs doing. If the project to build the wall and provide the people of God with safety and security was now complete, this was but one necessary step in what was ultimately required. What the people of God needed most of all was a hard attitude in which they were passionate about the things of God. And Nehemiah knew he didn't have the gifts needed for this, and so he partnered with another man. God had called Nehemiah to a task, and Nehemiah responded. And he continues to respond to the voice of God as Dr. Neufeld concludes his series, God's Man. As we wrap up this series today, I'm reminded of how very important it is for men to know God, to dig deep, to understand His ways, and to allow that understanding to shape who we are and our willingness to humbly abide in Christ. I can tell you that this message is very close to the heart of Back to the Bible Canada. Our ministry revolves around helping people know and respond to God, to have their lives transformed by this great news of salvation and regeneration. Your efforts in prayer and through your generosity make this ministry possible. So this June, would you give toward our fiscal year-end goal? The goal is significant but achievable, especially with the provision of our matching pledge of $100,000. Remember, every dollar you give this month will be doubled. So consider a gift today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or donate online at backtothebible.ca. Now let's go back to the Bible with Dr. John Newfeld. Wise men know 
that they don't have all the gifts that are required for the battle. They will need a band of brothers to complete the task. Nehemiah 7 verse 5 reads, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. Several things demand our attention. Nehemiah may look like a man of action, and he is. But Nehemiah is a man who does not run ahead of God. He is prepared to be obedient rather than take matters into his own hands. Ultimately, God takes the initiative, and Nehemiah demonstrates his yieldedness to God by following. But the statement that God put it into Nehemiah's heart tells us that Nehemiah is a man who maintains a close relationship with God. And here, just for a moment, we need to stop and consider the place of the spiritual disciplines in the heart of every man of God. A constant reading of the scripture, a daily regimen of prayer, a regular confession of sin, a willingness to be accountable to others, a life of consistency in worship, all of these spiritual disciplines practiced for a long period of time create in every man a deep sense of God's leading. Men of God, after all, are not noted for their accomplishments, but they are noted as men who walk with God. That's how they overcome discouragement, intimidation by others, and a sense of aimlessness. It's this intimacy with God that drives them forward, not a desire to make a name for themselves or establish a reputation among others. Making a name for ourselves is the motivation of a lesser man, godly men instead are constantly asking if they know their God. Nehemiah felt deeply that after the wall was built, he not only would work with the book of genealogy, but to gather the people of Israel together. And then at this point, we come to chapters 8 and 9, and we're going to notice Nehemiah giving a considerable amount of leadership away to another. In chapter 8, verse 1, we read, And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. Now moving forward to verse 2. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard, and on the first day of the seventh month. Several features grab our attention. That meeting, including all of the organization for it, must have been arranged by Nehemiah. After all, he was the man skilled in this kind of leadership. Secondly, the reference to the water gate very likely refers to the temple square, a large, expansive area before the rebuilt temple that would have allowed the kind of space that was required for a large public gathering. And finally, the reference to all who could understand must undoubtedly have referred to the children. Children were included in what was about to happen. They were not considered too immature to be a part of an adult event if they could understand they were there because they needed to be. Now to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people. Now to verse 8. They, that is Ezra and the other priests, they read from the book of the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Now just a little context is required. By the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the language of Israel had moved from Hebrew to Aramaic. Now, the law of Moses was written in Hebrew, and there was no Bible translation at that time. So clearly, a part of what Ezra was doing was translating the text so that everyone could understand. But that, of course, was not the end of the matter. Not only does the text need to be translated, the text was written about 1,000 years earlier. 
the context of the text needed to be explained, and how to apply the ancient law to the unique situation that the people were living in today. And by the way, that hasn't changed at all. The role of a Bible teacher is to do exactly that so that everyone hearing the Word of God can understand exactly what's being read. And then the response. I'm reading from verse 9. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Notice several things. First, Nehemiah was present when the law was being taught. He, he wasn't out of the room. You know, I've heard of key leaders in local churches who are not there when the Word of God is being taught. That's not just a tragedy. It's a profound sin. It's like saying, it's good that others are being taught to submit to God. I just don't want to be submissive. I want to exercise my skill of leadership without God. See, any church led by such people will always suffer under the weight of this. But I also notice in this incident that the effect of the Word of God is profound. Because of the many sins that had already been exposed, the people don't react by condemning others, but rather they react by being confronted by their own sins. And as the law of God is being read and explained, one can hear the sounds of weeping. I'm reminded of Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10. There he wrote, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Worldly grief is concerned with the world's approval and how we might be restored in their eyes. Godly grief is caused by God and leads to genuine repentance. In Nehemiah 9, verses 1 to 3, we read, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth, and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And what follows in the rest of the chapter includes a confessional prayer of the people and then also a reminder of the faithfulness of God. In prayer, they remembered God's promises to those who would confess their sins, and they called upon God to remember his covenant and be merciful with them. And all of this began, if you will remember, with one man who cared deeply about God's people, A man who went to his king and requested permission to go to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. One man who determined to fight for the people of God finally watched as a leading priest led God's people to one of the great revivals in Israel's history. And that brings me back to the words that Isaac Watts wrote in his famous hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? You remember he wrote the line, Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me on to God? Men, I'm speaking to you. You have a calling from God to pick up the sword of the Spirit and to put on the full armor of God and fight for your God and for his people. Men, what is your calling from God? What is that thing that simply must be fixed? Or where is that battle that simply must be won? Perhaps it's a call to missions. Maybe it's a call to giving. Perhaps it's a call to joining a band of brothers for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom. 
But are there no foes for you to face? Is there no spiritual warfare in this age in which we live that you must not fight for? Listen, men, God has created you for engagement and warfare. Nehemiah's days were unique to him, and your days are unique to you. What is it that God has called you to do in this hour, and what is the work that you must give yourself to? The book of Nehemiah still goes on for several chapters after this. Nehemiah had one more great battle to fight, but we won't deal with that here. But as the book of Nehemiah comes to an end, all issues are not resolved. Further fights remain, but the book simply ends with a prayer of Nehemiah. It ends with the words, Remember me, O God, for good. And that, I think, is the aim of every man of God. I wish to fight the Lord's battle, and when it's all over and I've done my part, remember me, O my God. You know, for this week, I've been encouraging men to to take up your God-appointed role, to be a man of God. I've encouraged you to your unique God-ordained role as a man. Regardless of the battle or the successes that you may or may not find in your battle, know this. God always remembers your prayers. God is watching. Men, join with me as I pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all the men who are now listening to my voice. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for having created them as men. Thank you for their singular vision, and thank you for the calling that's there in their lives. Oh, Lord God, I pray that godly men will arise from all parts of our land and will take up the sword of the Spirit and will fight for the people of God and for the glory of their God. Heavenly Father, I pray that there would be a great company of men from all places who would be known throughout this land as the men who know their God. In Jesus' name, our precious commander, we pray. Amen. John, an exceptional series, and I know it was an encouragement and a challenge to me, but something you mentioned earlier in today's message, I just wanted maybe to give one or two points of how we can not run ahead of God. Yeah, I know that's always a danger. I think the danger is seen most uh, when men make these visionary plans and all the things that, that they want to do. I think we do best when we are in touch with the Lord and we're listening to his voice, we're regular in our Bible study and so forth, and and we're giving ourselves to this commitment, Lord, for the sake of the gospel, I would gladly abandon all. And then I believe that God will present us with a number of challenges or opportunities and we'll find our hearts moved by what we hear. I think it's a response to God that we're looking for rather than running ahead. Thanks, John, for that great insight. And join us again next week right here on Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. We pray this series will go on to impact many men to respond to God with their lives. Men that will offer themselves completely to God's calling, men of humility, men dedicated to the purposes of the kingdom. Now at the conclusion, we want to make sure this series is available to everyone through every medium possible. So for the month of June, not only will we be able to listen to this message online through our podcast, audio mail, even through our mobile application, but you'll be able to request the five message series on CD for free. So if you'd like to have your own CD copy of God's Man, or you'd like to pass it on to a friend or even donate it to your church library, 
Get your copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425. That's 1-800-663-2425. Or request the entire series through email at info at backtothebible.ca. We look forward to hearing from you.